David McCullough, in his book, Mornings on Horseback, which uh, tells the story of Theodore Roosevelt, and this story is particularly of a, a young Theodore Roosevelt who is going to church with his mom in Madison Square Church, but she discovers that he is fearful to go into the church. And she's like bewildered, like, why? why? Young, the- young Teddy, why are you so scared to go into church? And a young Teddy says, the zeal of the Lord is in there, and it's going to eat me. It's going to consume me. And, and this mother's like, oh, Young Teddy, what is, the, what is the zeal of the Lord? I don't know. I think it's a monster or an alligator or a dragon or something like that. All I know is it's in the darkness, in the corners. And then his mother said, well, who told you this? He said, well, the preacher said, the zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. Like young Teddy, we are justified to be afraid to come in the presence or near the zeal of the Lord. Because the Lord's zeal will consume and will devour and will eat up those that are not his. Our Lord is always good. All the time, right? All the time he is good. But he is not safe, as we're reminded by C.S. Lewis in the Chronicles of Arnia. Like, God is always good. But he is not safe. He is powerful and he is mighty. The Lord's zeal is not an animal. It's not a force. It's not lurking in dark corners. It's right in front of us all the time. If we want to define zeal, right, zeal is this overflowing enthusiasm or passion, but more specifically, I would define zeal biblically as jealousy. Zeal is jealousy. And often we think that jealousy is negative, but it is not negative in the sense of biblical term. Jealousy is not negative. Another, Jerry Bridges in his uh, book, Respectable Sins, defines jealousy as an intolerance of rivalry. God is intolerant of rivalry. All right, so right jealousy or proper jealousy or, or good jealousy would be in the sense that where someone would try to win the affection of your spouse, right? You, as a husband or wife, ought to protect that marriage and do what you ought to fight that intruder. And so it's a, a desiring something that is good. The condition of, of loving something that you have and they don't feel threatened because of the love of that thing or person might be taken away. That's the kind of love that God has for us. He has us, and he is jealous that our hearts might go elsewhere, that we might love and we might have a passion for anything else besides him. So he is jealous. He is zealous for us. In comparison to the envy, right? If you want to compare jealousy and envy, right? Jealousy is the people have something and they're afraid to lose. Envious people are, do not have something and they want to take it from someone else. Right? So envious is not good. So what is God's zeal? What is God's zeal? What is, the, is Jesus' zeal that consumes him in the temple and throughout his whole life? What consumes him? And the answer is simple. It's worship. Worship. Jesus is consumed with proper worship. Properly directed worship. And I want to explore that in this passage today. 
as we look at John. But this really is the biblical theme from beginning to end. Properly directed worship. And if you want to define worship even more clearly, it would be love. Properly directed love. And so in John 2, verses 13 to 14, the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up, to Jerus- went up to Jerusalem, and in the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. Now we know that the, the Passover was a feast instituted by God in Scripture for the Jews to participate in. It was a celebration of the exodus out of Egypt, right? So God freeing his people, the great deliverance, out of slavery, into God leading them into the wilderness and eventually into the promised land of God, creating covenants with them, being with them, and his presence physically with them as well. Right? It's, it's, it's a prescribed manner of how to worship God, the Passover feast, right? And that's actually an interesting side point, is that we don't have to wonder how we ought to worship God. He tells us how we are to worship him. Right? And so that's how we do this as we come together. We're prescribed like this is how God wants us to worship together. And we'll talk about that's a different sermon for a different day. But he doesn't leave us to guess how to worship him. So Jesus and his disciples and his family went up to Jerusalem, as many did in that time around the Passover, to celebrate, specifically to the temple. Right? And the temple was the place, was the symbol that God created in the Exodus in the wilderness to show that his imminence of that his his presence with his people that's what this temple or the tabernacle symbolized that he resided with his people what a great symbol of that and we know that god resides with us everywhere that he is everywhere all the time but this was a great symbol that he was with them no matter what and in this right jesus finds that in the temple there's two items of business. So the temple is a place of worship, a place that we are with God, that we celebrate and we praise him, and we give him thanks, and we, uh, we, they were, there were sacrifices to God for atonement. We'll talk about that more and more. But two items of business that are happening inside the temple that Jesus sees, and more specifically, that are happening out inside the outer coat. So there's a picture of the temple, and right... So that picture of the temple, the walls go in, and then the, the big courtyard, is that's the outer court or the court of the Gentiles. The court of the Gentiles is where pe- people who were not Jews were allowed into the temple that were God-fearing and were able to worship in that space. So that's as close as they could get. And then there's the, the inner temple, right, where men and women were allowed in, and then men could go even farther, right? And then there's the Holy of Holies where only the high priest could go into once a year, right? So is this kind of a symbol of God's holiness and God's imminent presence with his people. But the, all the temple is meant for worship. And so there it was, he sees, right, them selling in the outer courtyard, in the court of the Gentiles, them selling uh, pigeons, sheep, um, oxen, right? And why were they selling that? This is actually not a bad thing. This is actually a good thing because like Jesus, people travel far at Passover to the temple and instead of bringing an animal, which those animals were meant for, it, it written in Leviticus as an offer of sacrifice or offer of atonement for their sins. Now, that's interesting. Let's think about that for a second. What is, what is Jesus going to eventually do? Right? He's going to make the, the ultimate sacrifice, the ultimate worship, for the atonement of sins. 
So he's going to get rid of the sacrificial system. But this is a good thing. Jesus is not upset about that sacrificial system because it was a shadow or a symbol of what was to come. But they, but they, they sell these to people because it was, it was a burden for them to bring it them on their long journey. So normally, several decades before this time, where they would do that was outside the temple, in the valley, right outside between uh, the Mount of Olives, which you can remember where Mount Olives are, and the temple. And that's where they sell the sheep and oxen for people to come, not in the temple itself. So Jesus is not upset with the ministry of providing animals for people to buy to sacrifice. That was a, a ministry that was good and convenient. What he's upset with is the location of that ministry. Just hold that thought for a second. He's upset with the location of that ministry. The other thing that's going on is that there's money changers. So you think, well, that's a terrible thing, right? But that was a good ministry as well. Because the other thing that was required in Scripture was to pay a temple tax. Right, the, the priests, all they did, the only people that support them was the people of, of Israel. And so the people of Israel support that by paying a temple tax, right? It was forced upon a requirement, right? We don't do that at this church, right? I'm supported by the free will offering of people. A little bit different, but same mentality on that, right? And so they were required to pay a temple tax. And so the convenience of going, when you go to the temple, right, once a year, if you did that for Passover, was that you had to pay that tax. Now, here's the thing. There are all sorts of currency. There wasn't a unified currency in that area at that time. But the temple, because of who God was, they wanted a, a pure silver, as the holiest you can get, right? A, a purity of the, of the coin. And so all, at that time, all they accepted was a Tyrian coin. Now, most people couldn't get that. So they had to go and bring their own coins and exchange it for that coin so they actually give that coin to the temple and to the temple tax. Once again, that ministry normally happened decades before outside the temple in the same place where the sheep, oxen, and pigeons were sold. So Jesus is not upset with that ministry. He's upset with the location of that ministry. And maybe he's upset, doesn't really specify here, probably upset with also the abuse of that ministry as well too, of the of fleecing some people of their money, or profiteering off this ministry. And it goes on in John 2, 15 through 16. So you begin to see what, what Jesus is upset with. It's like, here's the house of worship. Here's the court of Gentiles where it's supposed to be people who are outside ethnically of Israel that are able to worship God. And there becomes a barrier for people to do that. John 2, 15 through 16. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those with, who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. Well, then you can write, this, this is an angry Jesus. This is not just like, hey, I'm not, this is not okay, guys. Can we, can we move this out? Now, he doesn't whip people right? He actually takes the whip because that's how you would move the cattle and the pigeons and all those things out, right? And so it doesn't say he's whipping people. He's just whipping, getting the animals out of the temple. And he flips over the thing because what he's upset, like, you've made a house of worship, the place where you're supposed to be in right relationship with God, which is the reason why you're providing these sacrifices anyway, to atone for your sin, and you're making it a house of ordinary commerce, of everyday activity, 
of trade. And you're blocking people from worshiping my Father. You're blocking people from being proper relationship with me. This is why he is angry. This is his house. This is supposed to be a place where it symbolizes. Now, this is fascinating, right? Do you understand that Jesus is God in that moment? In that moment, he's present with them. And he's, still, he's upset that you're blocking the symbol of my presence, even though he is the literal presence of God amongst his people. Just to pull back, do you understand? This is all about worship. This is all about proper love and proper relationship with God, right? right? And another way of helping us define what worship is, is worship is devoting yourself to something that is full of worth. And there's nothing, there's nothing more worthy than God. In fact, he is the only thing that is worthy. He is the creator of all things. He is the thing that's worth. It also means literally to prostrate, to bow down. That's what literally the word means. Right, expressing, expressing that you are unworthy compared to the worthiness of the thing that you are worshiping or the person you're worshiping. We worship things worthy of our devotion or things that we think worthy of our devotion. We give our life to things that we think are worthy to give our life to. We devote ourselves to it. It captures our attentions, the things that we worship. It grabs our heart. And this is what Jesus is talking about. Proper relationship. This is what God is talking about from the very beginning when sin enters the world is that he wants to grab our hearts. The proper worship means being proper relationship with God. So Jesus is furious in this moment. He's furious and he's grieved that the ordinary activities or things have captured other people's hearts besides proper worship, ministry, Ministry is blocking people. Good things are blocking people from worshiping him properly. Commerce. Things are inhibiting, blocking people, particularly other people, outsiders, people, ability to understand and proclaim God and praise him. God designated the temple as a place of worship, a symbol of his presence and relationship. And the people changed that purpose. They created barriers, and then they began to worship the wrong thing. Now, I think you and I can identify with a heart that goes after other things. I know I can, daily. A heart that is devoted and is captured by other things, that find other things worthy and like, that. Ah, I'm going to invest my life in that, or I'm going to invest my time in that. I mean, that's the story of Adam and Eve, and that's the story of every human ever since that moment, is that heart captures something else and goes after something else besides God. And God is jealous for that because we belong to him. John 2, 18 to 22. So the Jews said to him, after he did these thing, things in the temple, you can imagine, right? This is a pretty inflammatory language, right? And Jesus gets even more inflammatory in his language to the people in his temple. They say, so the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Basically, they're asking, it's who are you and what authority do you think you can come into this place and do these things and disrupt what we are doing, this this." 
ordinary and proper ministry. And Jesus answered them in probably the most cryptic way he could. Destroy this temple. I mean, he's telling them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. What? 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 I, mean, I mean, we we get it. We know what he's saying. Yeah, it's obvious what he's saying. But you, you sit in that time, it makes no sense at all. What do you mean, destroy this temple in three days? And you're going to raise it up by yourself? And they say, wait, it, it, Jews said to him, it has taken us 46 years to build this temple, and we're not even finished with it. And you will raise it up in three days? This guy's mad. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised up from the dead, his disciples remembered what he had said, and they believed the scripture, that the word that Jesus had spoken. I, I want you right, this is, think about what he's saying. He's saying, Jesus is saying to those that are trying to properly worship, or think they're properly worship, or think they're doing what God has told them to do correctly. That's such an important thing. They think they know what God has told them to do. And he says, destroy this place, which is the center of your faith. Destroy it. That is inflammatory language. That is incredible. You can understand. I mean, you read, particularly John. You read John and you see language. You understand why people want to kill Jesus. Because he goes right after the things that are most important. But here's the incredible thing about Jesus. He has very incendiary and inflammatory language. Do you know where he, he actually directs that, that anger towards? He directs it towards him. He never directs his language to go after someone else. He directs it to come after him. Destroy this temple. They're not saying, hey, we want to get people to go. No, they go after Jesus, all of his language. And part of that's a purpose, right? Because Jesus knows that they have to kill him. They have to kill them for all of us to be saved. He knows this. But it's an incredible thought that Jesus' language is always it can be inflammatory, but it's always directed, the anger is always directed at him. Not at someone else. Destroy this place, and, uh, this place, and it means the manner of worship. Destroy this manner of worship. It's, it's temporary. And so we have this editorial note after the fact right, that the, the disciples put in because after the resurrection, after they've been through Jesus for three years and after the resurrection, it's like, oh, now I get it. Now I get what he was saying. Now I know what he meant by the temple. He wasn't talking about a physical building. He's talking because the physical building was meant to be a symbol of the presence of God. Well, who's the presence of God? Jesus. Jesus is the temple. It wasn't the building. As soon as Jesus enters the world, the temple is mute. And there's no more purpose for it because he's the temple. And he's the sacrifice. He is the presence of God. It's so important to under, understand that concept, right? Jesus is, is the presence of God. He is the, the object. He is the location. And he is the means of proper worship. Because he is our mediator. We don't get to God through anyone but Jesus. And he is the object and the location and the means of our worship. And then we go on, the New Testament goes on further in 1 Corinthians 3, 16, 17. And Paul says, do you not know that you, the you is plural, this is really important to understand, the you is plural, are God's temple. 
and that the Spirit, God's Spirit, dwells in you. Plural. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. Now, oftentimes, and Christians, we take that as individually. Hey, I'm God's temple! Right? God resides in me, and yes, he does, but it's a plurality. You are not Jesus. You are not Jesus, and you cannot have a voice from God that is just to you. It's to his people. It's to his people. We are the temple because why are we God's temple? This is important logic. Because Jesus is God, and he is the temple. The actually physical presence of God, reminder to us, he replaces the temple. And then because we are united in him, because he unites us in him, that we are married in him, that we're tied to him. Therefore, we are his temple because he's the temple. And he gives us his Holy Spirit to reside in us. That's such an important concept to understand. This, this good news that Jesus provides the way, the means, and then, right, we know, right, it tells us in Ezekiel that he knows that he has to change our heart. He knows that every human heart is broken, that every human heart goes after and worships other things, that it's prone to, that it's, that it's fixated on other things, serially fixated after other things, day in and day out. And so God knows he has to change our heart from the inside out to direct that heart to its proper place of worship. And the one who alone is worthy. The one who alone is worthy of our worship. We go further in John to get this kind of point. You want to emphasize this idea of, of the importance of worship, right? We can go through all of Scripture, but I don't have time for that. Jesus, in a couple of chapters later in John, he converses with the woman at the well. He converses with the woman at the well, and we, we can go through that whole story, but this is the one of the things that he really hammers to her at the end. In, uh, John 4, 21 to 24. Remember, she's a Samaritan. We consider a Gentile, Right? like a half Jew, kind of believed in the same things. But Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming where they're neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem, which would be the mount on the temple, right? Neither, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain where you sit nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. What? The temple is the place of worship. For her, this was the place of worship. So you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. Now, we can go more into what that means. But, but the hour is coming, means, and it's here, now here, when the true worshipers, the true people that are devoted to God, will worship and praise and adore the Father in spirit and in truth. Notice what he's doing here. He's saying it's not the location anymore. It's not the temple. Why? Because he's the temple. He's the temple. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. Notice how much time worship is mentioned in here, right? God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Notice that word truth is in there. Well, of course, he goes later on and says, I am the truth. You worship the Father in Jesus. With Jesus, he's the location. And just before this, right, what does he offer 
the woman? The living water. And what does the living water symbolize? Holy Spirit, which is eternal life. The Holy Spirit, his spirit. So you need my spirit in you so you can actually worship me because you can't do it on your own. I know all human hearts, and they're not prone to me. Jesus' passion, his zeal, his jealousy is for proper worship, proper relationship with me. That is what compels him from day one when sin enters the world. I have to fix these people. I have to fix their hearts. His jealousy, he's jealous that we worship after other things, and we do it day in and day out. Going further in John 11, right, the, re- the resurrection of Lazarus, right, and this, this, his dear friend, and we know in this story, right, in John eleven thirty five, Jesus weeps, but the, the point of this whole story is that Jesus is grieved, and actually later says he's angry and furious because the people that are closest to him in the world still don't know who he is still don't recognize that he is God, that he is the place of worship, that he is the object of worship, and he is the means and ways of worship. And so that's why he's agreed, because they don't understand that he is the resurrection and the life. They don't understand that he has that power. And so he's grieved. We'll talk about that story later on, but that's, that's why he weeps. That's why he's grieved, because that's what he's zealous for. He's zealous and he's concerned and he's grieved because our heart goes after other things. So what is God zealous for? John 2, 17. His disciples remembered that it was written. It's just incredible, right? This is actually, Jesus doesn't say this in this moment. He doesn't quote this scripture. And I think it's, maybe they remembered in the moment, but I actually think it's remembered after the resurrection, just like the previous passages said, or the next passages after this say, that they come back to us like, Got it. You know, you know that passage in Psalm 69 when David says, because Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise to David of his kingdom? Like he says, right, zeal for your house will consume me. David was consumed with proper worship of God. And so was Jesus in that moment. Zeal for your worship will consume me. They got it. Like, Jesus was passionate for worship. And it consumed him. It consumed him. It devoured him. It ate him. It destroyed him. Literally, it destroyed him because it had to for our sakes. Right? This consume, right? It means all encompassing passion. It consumed him. That was all his company and passion for us to worship properly. And it literally put him to death. That passion. It literally put him to death so that we could that actually be in proper relationship with him? That we could actually properly worship with him? Jesus is zealous for worship. He is zealous for proper worship, which is directed to him, through him, and with him. And Jesus is zealous for us. He is jealous for us. He is fighting for his bride day in and day out. He has fought for us. This is why he comes into the world to take on this this gross form for God. This is why he, he dies. This is why he resides with us. This is why he is working in our hearts today. 
This is the same ministry of jealousy that he invites us into. Will you participate in the ministry that I have is go find my people. Go speak my good news. Go speak about me so people can be in proper relationship with me. That's the ministry, the ministry of jealousy, let's call it, the ministry of zealousness, uh, to go after and do what Jesus does in this earth, to go after his people, to seek them out so that they may properly worship him. We turn our hearts, our directed worship, so easily from him to other things things that consume us, things that capture our attention, things that capture our energy and our time. The idolatry of, of created things, the idolatry of self, which is the idolatry, right? The idolatry of pride, which we know is the root of all of our sins, putting us equal or above or like God. A heart turned inward instead of a heart turn to the creator. This is not foreign to us. We experience it. I experience it day in and day out, and often I can't even recognize it in me. And you can't either. You can't recognize it in yourself. That's why we need each other, to call each other on our idolatry. This is why God promised us, as I promised Ezekiel, that I will give you a new heart a heart that's alive and not dead. I'm going to fix you within. A heart that is fixed on him and him alone. There is no room for anything else for us to worship. God has given us a heart that is only fixed on him. God is deeply grieved and therefore zealous when we turn good things that he gives us for evil purposes by placing them in the wrong priority in our lives. God is deeply grieved when we turn our hearts and consumed by other things that aren't him. What we talk about at this church, you know, the Westminster Confession of Faith, the, the shorter chasm, question one, which we know, right, what is the chief end of man? The primary purpose of all people, right, is to glorify God. And to enjoy him forever because God knows in the midst when our heart is worshiping and glorifying him and focused on him properly, that is where true joy comes from. That is our true joy. This, this question and this answer is a marvelous definition of worship and being proper relationship with God. We think about all the sins in the world and we can think about our own sins, but the reality is the fundamental sin the fundamental sin is idolatry in every human that's ever existed. That's, what, that's our ministry, is to talk about that. Not focus on the symptoms of idolatry, which is all the other brokenness that manifests itself in our life. But the fundamental sin of all people, whether you believe in Jesus or whether you don't, is that we make idols constantly. That's the sin. That's the ministry we go after. And so people can know who Jesus is. The core problem is not that we're too passionate about bad things or other things, but that we're not passionate about the one good thing and realize that God is the Lord of all things. 
that he's the, good, the giver of all good gifts. The problem is not enjoying things, but trying to find enjoyment in things in the ways they are not meant to be enjoyed. God gives us all these gifts, and he, he wants us to enjoy them in the way they're meant to be enjoyed, and in proper order, and in proper category. I, I, last year, I gave you a, a, a symbol that we played water, uh, soccer with a watermelon, right? Not very fun. I mean, fun for a moment, then you kick it. And then you realize the watermelon is not meant to be kicked. It's meant to be eaten and then enjoyed in that way. Things are, have a purpose and a design for them and are joined in proper order. Right? Soccer is enjoyable, but it does not satisfy the deep longing of your soul. Sex can be enjoyable, but it is fleeting and not satisfying to the soul. Marriage is, is good, but it is not satisfying to the deep longings of your soul. Work, your vocations, patriotism, those can be all good things. Your politics can be all good things, but they are not satisfying to your soul. They are meant to be enjoyed in proper order. Food can be enjoyable, some more than others. We don't have to talk about which ones. <laughs> but not when we try to use anything to satisfy our soul or to give us a joy that is not meant to satisfy. They're all just shadows. The one thing that's supposed to capture our heart. All joys are, th one, are shadows of the one thing that gives us true joy, and that's God. We are to enjoy God's gifts for us today as God intended for them to be joy-filling for us. Ecclesiastes 2, 24, 25, there is nothing better for a person than he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God, for apart from him, who can eat or who can have, have any enjoyment? You can't. There's no enjoyment outside of God. I mean, we, we think they are, but they're just shadows enjoyments. Fleeting, temporary, gone in the midst. All pursuits to be subservient to God. And I hesitate to say that because it makes like, okay, God is here, and then, then there's this, then there's this. No, I don't want you to think of that that way. God is everything for you. And then there's things that he gives you to enjoy, and those joys point to him. So, so don't think, okay, here's the priority. It's like God, family, country, right? No, like God, and those things are not, like, I'm not saying they're meaningless. That's not what I'm saying. But in comparison, in comparison, they're just a myth. Temporary. That point to the one thing we are to enjoy. All pursuits to be subservient to God or worship becomes idolatry. Out of balance. I sent a letter talking about my griefs this week, and I'm sure that we all enter into grief and maybe some anger and confusion. And, um, and those griefs were not in any particular order. But I thought about the order. <laughs> I'll have to say them so that you might not misunderstand. And so I'll just remind you of some of those griefs. That, and these are not comprehensive because I can't even comprehend all the griefs that I had this week. This heavy week, this, this culmination of these 10 months uh, that, I, that I really think God has been, I don't know, maybe he's working on you, but working on me and my heart and my brokenness and my idolatry. 
And I, I grieve the loss of life at any time. And I feel for any family, no matter who they are, when they lose one. I, I've seen too many people die and who are dead in my life. It is a somber, sad moment for those that are living. Period. I grieve, I grieve for the way that justice and our response is not equal in America. I'm not making any judgments, but it is obvious. It is obvious in that moment on Wednesday that it was not normal, it's not right, it's not the same. Lots of explanations why that could have been. I grieve with many people that see that experience every day, that injustice. I, I grieve because I saw banners of hatred and I saw banners proclaiming Jesus and they were mixed together. That breaks my heart. I grieve for truth all the time and not that I am the keeper of truth, but I know who is. I grieve for love because I know who God is and what he's called me to do and I know I'm a child fail for that. And I grieve because our words and our speech matter all the time. And that is tied in with truth and love for us Christians. And, and this, this country has a great uh, right, right freedom of speech, right? And that's a good thing. I, I affirm that. But in that law, there's actually boundaries of that freedom of speech. It's not that you can just say anything. I don't want to diagram what that actually is. But for Christians, for Christians that live under that freedom, we actually are tied a little bit more by that. We are tied because our words matter and because we represent and because we are being transformed into the character of God that those words ought to always speak truth and ought to always be in love. Now, you know, I know I fail that all the time. All the time. But that is, that is who God is. So we cannot speak things that we think are true. We ought to know they are true verifiably before we ever speak them, before we ever share them. Otherwise, we enter into false witness, gossiping things that we aren't sure of. Right? And Scripture talks about what comes about our mouth, right? Reveals our heart. So it's best to be quiet, to not reveal yourself. But God knows. Said it in the Scripture. God knows our heart. And I grieve because democracy is a beautiful thing. The ideals that this country, uh, they, they, the, the fathers of this country that they founded, they founded some ideals that were incredible. I'm not sure how incredible they knew that ideals were. The, the major one that they, I think they found that was incredible is that all the rights given to humanity are not given by any man or any government. That is given by God and God alone. To come upon that truth is amazing. Now, I know the practice of those ideals in our country have not always met those ideals. But is it a beautiful thing? that they stumbled upon. Maybe stumble is not fair to them. That they came upon, that they spoke. And I think that was harmed on Wednesday. I think that's harmed often many days. And that grieves me. And I grieve for many people that felt on Wednesday that they had to do that thing. I grieve for them. That they have that anger and that they have that hurt. I understand it because I have anger and I have hurt. So I'm not better than them. It's not, what I, it's not how I viewed Wednesday. Like, oh man, I'm so much better than these people. <laughs> right? It's really just an outward reflection. Like, oh, look at my heart out there. 
Not that I say I'm joining with those people, are, but like, that's the manifestation, the physical manifestation of my heart day in and day out. But I left, and in that, in that letter I left, and I teased, I said, you know what really sunk my heart? There's something that really sunk my heart. And I don't say that because I'm godly or holier than you, because you know that I'm not. You spend just a few moments with me. You realize I am not. The thing that differentiates you and me is I just have a different calling. That's the thing that differentiates. And listen, I proved it yesterday at my idolatry. I sat for three and a half hours in just this emotional anger and venom that spilled out of my mouth. And I knew, I said, this is absurd. But I couldn't, I mean, I, I actually tensile thoughts. Shut up, relax, it's not important. But I couldn't because my idolatry was this team that I somehow associated because at one time I lived in the city. And it consumed me. And I said to Jesse after the game, I said, I have to stop being angry about this. You can pray for me on that. That's just a, that's a silly idolatry. But I, I know it's worse in me day in and day out for other things. It spills out in horrible ways. But by God's providence, I, normally I, I preach, I know I'm going along. Normally I finish my sermon on Wednesday. And if I don't, I get, you know, fidgety, like, What's wrong? It's not done. But uh, lots of things happened. Why I didn't finish it? And, and partly because the events stopped me, right? And I got to spend time with my family, which was a beautiful thing on that day. Other reasons. And that was just God's providence. It's like, listen, this, what happened on Wednesday is connected to the passage that he assigned me to preach. Uh, all right, God. All right. Because we just learned that Jesus is zealous for worship in proper relationship with him. And we just learned that this is what he's grieved about. This is what infuriates him when we don't worship properly. It's what he did in the temple, right? When we put up barriers for ourselves and others to properly worship him. And so the two ways that I was grieved, I think it's the two ways that Jesus is constantly grieved in this world. Constantly grieved. The first way is that Christians that are idol-worshipping. And the second way, non-Christians were idol-worshipping. Everyone's included in here. Every person idol-worshipped, right? But those are just two fundamental ways that I, just, I had a distinction on, on Wednesday is that Christians were idol-worshipping in that moment and non-Christians were idol-worshipping in that moment. Christians that were involved in the riots, the looting, the, the violence, the storming, the seizing of our capital, the terrorism. I'm fine with all of those words and all those labels. Not with protesters. Like, I hope you've heard that from me from the summer. It's like, yes, we have rights and protests, and we go ahead. Protest. I mean, as Christians, we ought to be how we protest, right? Be mindful of all of that, right? But man... Not in the way that happened, on, not with the, the actions that would turn into violence. Like, if, if you think that is okay, then you and I need to have a talk and open up Scripture. Because as a follower of Christ, that is not what we do, period. Period. There, there's, this, there's this thing, there's nationalism, which is a great heresy. And, and nationalism would best be way of conflating 
or intertwining your identity with your nation. And nationalism happens all around the world, right? And I'm not saying you shouldn't identify, you can't identify being American. You ought to. You live in this country. You identify as American. That's a good thing. Boot in proper order of your identity. Put it in proper place. But it does not intertwine into who you really are. It cannot. It's not who God has designed you to be. It is a temporary placement. Christian nationalism takes it a step, step further. It is intertwining your faith with your country. And that is a great heresy that resides in the evangelical church in America. It is it's a particularly American thing. It's not exclusively, but it's an American thing that is founded on this idea of this manifest destiny of this country. I'm not saying that, that right, we shouldn't have Christian morals. I'm just saying, but the idea that our country is intertwined into this, our faith and our identity. And so in order for me to have faith, I am a patriot. And when those two waver, my faith wavers. That, that, it, that's not possible. That's not possible with true faith because they are Christians that you are united with that aren't Americans, that aren't capitalists. There are Christians that are socialist. Guess what? You're united with them because that's your identity. It's you're united in Jesus. And so Christian natural is your faith is tied to your patriotism and therefore there's a goal to become this Christian nation. It's really American because it, it, in its absurd form, this idea that God has formed this country as the manifestation of his kingdom or his ideals on earth. An absurd form that happened in America through Mormonism. Right? It's a absurd form. We won't talk about it initially. But it happens in the evangelical church. And even worse, it is not always, not exclusively, but it's tied to white nationalism as well, too. Great heresy in the evangelical church that we ought to be grieved because they're worshiping after something that they ought not to. They're intertwining something that ought not to be intertwined with God. And I'm not saying, I, I heard me clearly, I, there's a beautiful thing about the democracy and the, the ideals of America. There's a beautiful thing about that. But it is not the God-given government. It's not. It might be the best, but it is not. You cannot open the Bible and say, ha-ha, America. Right? Here's the thing. God established his kingdom already, and it knows no barriers. It knows no national walls. It has no military might. It has God Almighty. It has one king and it resides everywhere. And there's no rationale in Scripture to say we're going to form a kingdom nation that is God's, and we will conquer the world and his ideals. That's, that's Christian nationalism. It is a great heresy. We, we even have this term, right, in, in, in creating the capital, right, is the, the seat of democracy, but it's actually called the temple of democracy, too. If you actually, we, I went there a couple years ago and they have this whole thing about the temple. It's just, this is a very American thing to intertwine the state with our religious terms, right? Like, hey, there's only, there's only one temple people to worship at. You know that now, right? It's Jesus. <laughs> Jesus, there is no other temple to worship at. Democracy might be a good thing, but it is not a thing that we all worship at. And so, when some people that storm the Capitol, 
because they believe a threat to election, because they believe that what God wanted and what God gave them, that was an idolatry. And that's not shame in that. It's like, hey, I get it. I idolize all the time. I get it. But we need to speak into that, don't we? There are Christians out there, I'm not going to name them, prominent Christians out there who said they were willing to die for Trump and for this election because God told them that he won and that he would be their leader. What? You're willing to die? Here's who you should be willing to die for. Jesus. Jesus. And don't intertwine that into your patriotism. I'm not saying people shouldn't die for the country and serve. The, I'm not saying that, right? Okay, we, that's a different conversation we're going to have for a different day. But there was one great cause that we are created for. You can search the Bible, and if, if God told you that Trump was going to win, listen, you don't understand prophecy very well because the prophets usually spoke a word to a people that didn't want to hear it. The people that said that God told them that Trump was going to win took a prophecy and told the people that wanted to hear it. Those are proven to be false prophets, right? Don't worry, they proven to be false prophets over and over again. Because it's idolatry. It's not that they don't know Jesus. I'm not saying that. Just they have a heart like mine that's prone to idol worship. And I'm grieved. I'm grieved because when you're Christians, when, when we all idol worship, when we worship something before Christ, we put up a barrier and block others from seeing the true broody and the truth of the gospel. That's what I'm grieved about. That's what Christ is grieved about. And the other Christians that don't know, that, that participated in idol worship on that day. Because, right, our primary function is to find the lost, to find those that are idol worshipers, because that's God's primary identity. And so I'm grieved for anyone that doesn't know Jesus, that doesn't know that they, he is the one they ought to worship that they put other things that consume their love. My heart aches, hear this very clear, aches for every one of you because I want you to know Jesus. I want you to fall deeper in love with Jesus every day. And I want people that don't know Jesus to fall deeper in love with Jesus. I want them to know him. I want us all to grow in our worship and our devotion to him. The commitment of our lives and our wills for him. It's, it's, this is the purpose. is the flourishing of humanity and, and all of creation is for us to proclaim the good news that he alone is worthy. That he alone is the object and location and the way of worship. This is not an establishment of a nation, but a kingdom that knows no boundaries or walls or barriers. And I hope you don't come away with, man, Tracy has certain political views. You don't know. I didn't express any of those views. I express my heart for you to be concerned about idol worship in yourself and others and to have a ministry that doesn't block people from worshiping. And trust me, that's a day-in and day-out ministry towards yourself and towards others. Jesus is so zealous for our proper worship that he's willing to flip over anything that gets in our way. And maybe that's what he's been doing for me this past year. i got to flip some things over in your life because it's getting in your way of proper worship. He's willing to die for us because we get in our own way. Maybe he's willing to flip a nation over because it's getting in the way of his people. I don't know. 
I'm not, I don't know, this may be. How are, how are you and I being a barrier to someone proclaiming and knowing and worshiping Jesus? Are you prepared to flip over anything in your life that becomes a barrier for you and others to worship Jesus? Jesus is. Jesus is prepared to flip anything over that gets in the way of proper worship. Jesus has the power to break every chain in your life. Every idol in your life, he has that power to break. Jesus knows our heart and he knows our deception. He knows your idolatry, right? He said it in John 2, 24, 25. Did you hear it? But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. And he needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. He knew the idol worship. I want my life to be a bridge, not a barrier to Christ. I want my politics to be a bridge and not a barrier to Christ. I want my actions to be a bridge and not a barrier to Christ. I want my thoughts and I want my opinions to be a bridge and not a barrier to Christ. So if that means I need to suppress them, so be it. I want people to know Christ. I want this in your life as well. I want this in the life of this congregation because this is what God is zealous for. This is what God wants. He wants us to have proper worship in him and through him and for him. He is zealous for you and I. May we be a people that follow Christ, that daily correct ourselves and each other by the power of his spirit to be bridges to Jesus and not barriers of worship. He alone is worthy. Let our zeal not be a boogeyman that's hiding in the dark, that's ready to devour and scare people away, but let our zeal be a love that draws others to Jesus. Amen? Let's pray. Gracious Father, I am thankful that you love me despite my broken heart, despite my tendency and our tendency to wander off and go after other shiny things and exciting things and devote my time and energy to other things. I am thankful that you love us, that you are zealous for us. Lord, help us be zealous for you, to be zealous for proper worship, proper relationship. Help us to have a zealousy for, to have others in proper relationship as well. We pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen.